Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. And so Coldfinger decides not to kill him, and he makes Bond his secretary. <laughs> yeah, I'm not joking. What? <laughs> what? Oh, my God. Oh. Oh. Diamonds in Death, a James Bond podcast. I am your double O host, Jonathan Watkins. I am a writer for all things under the Cinema Sense brand name, a co-host of the Behind the Sins podcast. Joining me each and every week for this endeavor is my good friend, co-founder of Cinema Sense, co-host of the weekly podcast, Recotopia, Mr. Chris Atkinson. How are you doing, sir? Hello, I am doing all right. How about you? I am doing great as well. Thank you for asking. I guess my first question is, have you ever had a friend named Pussy? Hmm... Um, no, 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 I, I have never, never, I, I lead, I lead a really boring life. I don't, I don't have, uh, you know, a, a friend named Pussy or I never had a friend named Pussy. So I guess it's possible someone has been given that as a first name, but there is no way in hell I'm Googling it. Mm hmm. Yeah. Mm hmm. I'm not Googling it, but I've got a feeling it's happened. This week we are talking about Goldfinger. I would say it's one of the most well-liked Bond films. Mm-hmm. It's certainly one of the most famous ones. Uh, if if when people think of James Bond, they think of a lot of images from this one. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and get into it. We're going to dig into the behind the scenes in our first segment that we like to call Eon Flux. This is a journey. I'm gonna make a movie. We have to go back, Kate. Wow. How did you know all that stuff? I did my research. I don't understand any of this. What the fuck is going on? We are going to scour through the history of Eon Productions and give you all the highs and lows that went into the makings of these films. I want to start out by saying that while some of my research comes from online searches, I'm also getting information from a great book called Nobody Does It Better, The Complete, Uncensored, Unauthorized Oral History of James Bond. That's by Mark A. Altman and Edward Gross. Highly recommend you check that out if you want to learn more about these movies after, you know, we're done dissecting them. Mm -hmm. uh, Goldfinger is what we're talking about this week. Goldfinger was not initially what they were going to do next. They were going to do On Her Majesty's Secret Service. But they were working under a very quick turnaround. And so the reason they ended up not making Honor Majesty's Secret Service, the next film, is because they didn't have enough time to get it all done. Would have required extensive shoots in Switzerland that they didn't have the time to scout or prep. Now, of course, today that wouldn't even be an issue. They would just green screen that shit and move on, which I kind of fucking hate. But mm -hmm. it's where we're at, right? <laughs> I heard someone on a podcast recently talking about the 1970s death on the Nile versus the 2022 death on the Nile. And in the 1978, when they were saying... That, you know, you'd have a movie set in Egypt, you would just go to Egypt to film, right? But, yeah. You know, and films do still shoot on location now, but it's just not necessarily the norm, I guess, especially 
uh, with the precautions that COVID made everybody take. And some of that's kind of stuck around, which is, you know, reasonable, uh, but in some ways, unfortunate. So anyways, they still really wanted to make Thunderball. Uh, we're going to talk about that more next week, but that was still a whole mess. So they decided to do Goldfinger. Yeah. And the main reason they settled on Goldfinger, I read, they wanted a storyline that appealed more to the North American market. And a lot of Goldfinger takes place in Kentucky, which is really weird. It's weird seeing like James Bond in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Very weird. So we've got a few things going on here. Terrence Young, uh, who's the director of the first two films, he decided not to come back. Uh, some people say it's because of money. Uh, I read that some places. Um, I also read an interview with him where he mentioned how he idolized Howard Hawks. And like Howard Hawks, uh, the, the the great director, uh, Terrence wanted to be able to dabble in as many genres as he possibly could because that's something Howard Hawks did, right? You know, he would do gangster films and then he would do a screwball comedy and then he would do like a thriller or whatever, so or or a western or whatever. So you know, Terrence Young kind of wanted to do that. He had already made a couple of Bond films, but you know, once again, if they had offered him enough money, maybe he would have come back. So that could be part of it too. We don't know. So uh, we've got Sean Connery back though uh, for his third of six appearances uh, as Bond in the Eon Productions franchise. He was getting a little restless though, and was worried he was going to be pigeonholed as Bond. Uh, he did two movies between From Russia with Love and Goldfinger. They were Woman of Straw and Marnie. Uh, Marnie is an Alfred Hitchcock film. I haven't seen it in a while. I remember liking it more than I feel the overall attitude is for it. But that is one I need to revisit because I haven't seen it in a while. I don't even remember if I've seen that movie. I, I, I know I've heard of it, but like I don't even remember if I've seen it. Woman of Straw is a movie that I just watched for the first time a couple of years ago, and I honestly don't recall much about it. So I can't speak too much to it. Neither film was a huge hit. I mean, Marnie, I guess, did okay because it was Hitchcock, but uh, neither film was a huge hit. He was offered a role in a John Ford film at this time, too, uh, but he had to decline that because he had this contract with Eon for the next Bond film. So, you know, that might have irritated him, too. So we've got Connery back. We don't have Terrence Young back. So they go get Guy Hamilton. Hamilton was one that was... It was a name we had talked about being associated with Dr. No. Reports on whether he turned them down or he wasn't ever fully considered are, you know, up in the air. But it was a name that had been mentioned. So uh, he was, uh, you know, the the producers uh, had some interest in him. Mm -hmm. Prior to Goldfinger, uh, he hadn't done a lot that I had heard of. He directed a film called An Inspector Calls, which I actually own but have not watched yet. And this is going to be his first of four Bond films. Yeah, he's basically got, got kind of all he does uh, after this point is Bond movies. He does a few others, and like Remo Williams might be his biggest, like, well known after this, but like. Remo Williams is a movie I enjoy, but it did not do well. That was supposed to start a franchise. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it was The Adventure Begins, right? Remo Williams, yeah, yeah. Guy Hamilton also directed two of my favorite Agatha Christie adaptations, uh, 1980s The Mirror Cracked uh, with Angela Lansbury playing Miss Marple, and uh, 1982's Evil Under the Sun, which was the second uh, adaptation of a uh, Hercule Poirot novel um, that Peter Ust Ustinov, Peter Ustinov played. Uh, I believe it's Ustinov. We'll go with that. I also read an interview with Hamilton where he mentions that he was really interested in spending a lot more time with the villain uh, in, in this movie in Goldfinger. Uh, Connery, however, did not like this approach as much. He felt like he was just a supporting character. And kind of an interesting takeaway, right? Like they were start they started uh, they started building up Spectre and everything, and then in this one they're like, yeah, we're just going to get away from Spectre, you know. So 
We're not getting into Fast and Furious kind of ridiculousness here. No, we haven't gotten to that point, yeah. But I think this one leans in more to the fantastical. Uh, From Russia with Love is more Cold War slash hard-edged spy movie. This felt more like a summer blockbuster, Mm -hmm. kind of like in a Mission Impossible uh, territory, you know, something like that. This film really feels like it's starting to outline the template that kind of would become the summer tentpole movie for the studios. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people credit Jaws with being like that kickoff film, yeah. but obviously there's going to be films before Jaws that kind of, you know, help move this along. And I definitely think the Bond franchise, uh, you know, is one of those things. And we talked about this when we talked about Dr. No, mm-hmm. uh, how the Bond franchise at the time was just something very different than you know, what your average movie was coming out. Um, Richard Maybaum comes back as a writer. Uh, They also brought in this guy named Paul Dean. Uh, He was a poet turned screenwriter. He adapted The Spy Who Came In From The Cold for the big screen, uh, which is a very famous spy novel, uh, along with three of the Planet of the Apes sequels. Uh, He also adapted Murder on the Orient Express, which was a 1970s version directed by Sidney Lumet. Uh, that's also obviously an Agatha Christie adaptation. And uh, he also wrote this movie I like called Seven Days to Noon. It's a it's a really, really cool Western. Uh, so he comes in and adds a lot more of the fantastical stuff. Uh, Maybon's draft was a lot more straightforward, like From Russia with Love. Uh, and then Dean comes in and adds stuff like the Jill Masterson scene. Mm-hmm where she's covered in gold. Uh, he gave odd job a little more to do. Uh, he added the part where he crushed the golf ball, for instance. Huh. Uh, he also introduced the Aston Martin and uh, kind of all the gadgets. So some people do credit him, uh, you know, kind of getting the franchise to really lean into the the cars and the gadgets and all that kind of stuff. Uh, hmm. Maybon does come back uh, and he does some polishing on the draft that Dean polished. As far as the cast goes, obviously we've got Connery back. Uh, the villain, which is Goldfinger, obviously, he is played by an actor named Gert Frobe. Uh, he was dubbed by British actor Michael Collins. Uh, Collins said that Frobe did such a good job with his mannerisms being in sync, and they had him at least sounding out the words as best he could, so you really can't tell it's dubbed. I mean, well, because the accent is such that it seems like it's, you know, it, it does seem, it seems like he's saying it. Um, that's like, uh, from what I understand, uh, the first scene that honor Blackman shot with him was in that Kentucky ranch when they're out in the pat, the porch or whatever. And she was expecting him to say whatever line, but he said something in German and she goes, okay, I guess I got to say my next thing, even though I didn't hear the line. So she says her thing based on what whatever German thing he said. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic. Really interesting. Uh, Frobe had an interesting life. Uh, he was part of the Nazi party when he was 16 and really? was there for like eight years. He left and based on everything I've read, I don't believe he was all that into it. Uh, mm-hmm. He was more... Uh, It was more something he felt like he had to do. Uh, He actually decided to aid a pair of German Jews in their attempt to hide from the Gestapo at one point. Oh, okay. Um, In 1944, he joins the German army, and then after the war, he started pursuing acting roles. Uh, Orson Welles was considered for this role, but he wanted way too much money, so uh, Gert Froh got it. Uh, Otter Blackman is the actress that plays Pussy Galore. Uh, Goldfinger really kind of sets the template for what the Bond film will be, uh, at least for the next 42 years or so. but uh, one of those parts of that template, I believe, is the ridiculous female names. And we definitely get into that in this one. Uh, might get the most ridiculous one, in fact. This is the most ridiculous one. I mean, they, they, they obviously, no, they obviously get to the point where they start, like, just not even, I mean, this isn't subtle at all either, but they get to the point, you know, it, they're really reaching at some point. But uh, but this one, yeah, and I'm pretty sure this this sounds cheeky enough that, 
they wanted to get away with saying that word as many as many times as possible because Sean Connery is always saying pussy like every time he addresses her every time he addresses her um I find it a little crazy they were able to get away with using that name surprised Mm -hmm. they could get that past the MPAA what I read was the reason they got it past the MPAA was because she was named in that in the book which I Mm -hmm. don't really get (laughs) I don't either it's like the it's like the toilet in Psycho, right? Where like the there was the they they didn't they were going to have an objection to it, so they made it part of the plot. Like, well, she she flushes the the thing down the toilet, you know, whatever, and and they're like, okay, well, I guess you get you can put your toilet in there. So like, I don't I don't understand that either. I'm surprised they didn't change the name for the movie because they just they're just blatantly saying this word and, and let's not forget too that auric goldfinger is is a is a big huge like you know you know that he, his first name is basically gold and then goldfinger's gold you know this is so why gold member like does its stuff and you know where where he's where uh in gold member he's just you know everything about him is gold and i like gold and all that i hadn't seen goldfinger before this viewing in quite a while but one thing i will say i've always heard is that a lot of people perceive the pussy galore character as being gay Mm -hmm. and in the novel she very much is like it's not even a question yeah Uh, i'm honestly not sure how well that comes across in the film there's one moment where she says you're nothing that you do has any effect on me basically and basically saying even though you know we've seen bond and all he has to do is talk to a woman and she wants to sleep with him immediately which is weird um the you know she says that has nothing you know you have no effect on me and then just having you know having five women all the same height all blonde uh you know do in in this in this pilot you know this pilot uh crew that she's got or whatever it seems like she's the one who's probably the one who picked all of these women to be you know so yeah, there's there's more than enough hint in there, and of course we'll get to uh, the other stuff later uh, surrounding her and Bond. But uh, but yeah, I I, felt, I got I did get that sense, but it wasn't like it wasn't like uh, what's her name in uh, in From Russia with Love. And just to add, uh, Honor Blackman loved working with Connery. She said he was fun to roll in the hay with, which Mm -hmm. she followed up with, who wouldn't want to roll in the hay with Sean? Sure. Uh, She did mention when she was in the States doing press, it was really awkward because apparently all of the companies that own these publications and stuff uh, that were interviewing her basically Mm -hmm. put their foot down and said the journalist cannot say pussy galore. Uh, But then, of course, she didn't care. uh, So she would say Mm -hmm. things like, oh, you mean pussy? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, which is weird. I mean, it's so weird too, because, you know, people are going to be watching this movie. It's not like, you know, it's so yeah, it makes no sense. She sounds like a really, really cool person. I'll just go through a few other people in the cast. Uh, Shirley Eaton, she plays Jill Masterson and has one of the more famous scenes where her character gets painted gold. Uh, I remember the urban legend that she died in real life from being painted. <laughs> I did not hear that. Um, yeah, yeah, for real. It, it was something about they painted her whole body and so she suffocated. But in actuality, uh, the front of her is not painted because you only see her from behind. And they even had a doctor. Uh, yeah, exactly. And she's even in movies after it. So it's 
kind of odd that like right. any of us were gullible enough to believe that. It, it yeah. definitely had to be something that only kids believed. Well, it's kind of like when people thought that Josh Saviano from Wonder Years turned into Marilyn Manson. Yeah, but there was a uh, there was a, a doctor on set when they did this paint thing because you can obviously suffocate if you get painted over with uh, this gold and everything because they're using like actual gold paint or whatever. So uh, she did say it was very uncomfortable. I'm sure. Uh, she said she got hotter than she's ever been, and mm-hmm. she said getting everything applied took less than an hour, but she had to take several Turkish baths to get it off. Mm-hmm. Um, a guy named Harold Sakata plays Oddjob. He is one of the more famous, if not the most famous, henchmen in the franchise. Uh, he's got the top hat with the blade that he throws, which has been referenced numerous times in other films. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as far as what Sakata was doing before this, he was an American Olympic weightlifter and a former uh, winner of the silver medal uh, that he won one mm-hmm. year. Felix Leiter is back. Uh, the character was played by Jack Lord and Dr. No, and here he is played by Sek Lender. Uh, he has several credits in film and television, but nothing that I'd seen before. His film right before this was Stanley Kubrick's Lolita, which is one of the, maybe the only Stanley Kubrick film, actually, that I have not seen. Um, Desmond Llewellyn gets more to do this time. Yeah. This is the first film that really tries to establish what the Q branch is. Uh, mm-hmm. They show... Uh, Q's work area and people are trying out gadgets, which becomes a Bond staple, but mm-hmm. also has been parodied over the years, uh, most notably probably like in the Naked Gun movies or Austin Powers, obviously. Desmond was a little more nervous this time around, I guess, because he, he had a little bit more to do. So he was getting kind of nervous. Uh, Guy Hamilton actually thought he was playing the role too straight. So Hamilton basically gave him the direction that he hates Bond, or at the very least, he finds Bond to be a nuisance, which is essentially how the relationship plays out over the rest of Desmond's mm-hmm. uh, tenure as the character. So it looks like, uh, you know, Guy Hamilton has a little bit to do with that, at least. Kind mm-hmm. of got, got Llewellyn going in that direction, at least. Yeah. He said something to the effect that... Um uh that it was like well he's bond everybody loves bond so he would love bond too and and so guy hamilton said no no he you hate him this is where the pre-credit sequences become a thing it's fun to see but they do get better after this it's fun it's got uh you know it's got that ridiculous thing where he's swimming with the like bird on his head to to disguise him and then and then he gets done with this thing and he pulls off the wetsuit and he's got a tuxedo underneath it and then probably one of the most ridiculous lines ever uttered in a bond movie is i guess he won't be selling those heroin flavored bananas to fund a revolution yeah or something like that heroin flavored bananas you know what that probably was a thing in the 60s and i'm just being an asshole there's also that terrible one-liner in the sequence when he throws the fan in the water and he says something like it's shocking Uh (laughs) uh-huh it's so dumb (laughs) he just says shocking and then i think he does say absolutely shocking afterwards but like after he throws the fan into the tub the you know he just goes shocking uh, we get our first official theme song played over the opening credits, or at least more like the theme songs they have moving forward. And this is one of the best ones. Um, it's it it's not just the Shirley Bassey part of it that's so good. It's just the it's the way it just suddenly announces itself with that big huge, you know, that big huge instrumental, you know, flourish. The hands coming up with the reflection in it, and it's like. Dun, dun. And it just, that will be in your head the rest of the day. That's how how stark it is when it when it comes on. Yeah, and you also get the... Um, <laughs> wow, 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 wow. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. John Barry was the composer, and he was nominated for a Grammy for Best Score of a Motion Picture. Sadly, he did not win, but he was nominated. Uh, Shirley Bassey, of course, performs the vocals, and uh, she does come back, right? She does. I think she comes back. It, it and if not one more time, maybe twice. I'm I don't remember. I don't remember the the. Uh, but she does she have multiple. Yeah. Ken Adams is back as production designer. We really get into the Ken Adams look in this film that you think of when you think of Bond, the aesthetic, the villain's layer, etc. Yeah, this is another uh, a big Ken Adam, uh, you know, movie. And he, like I said, he's as much of a star of these early Bond movies as anybody um, uh, these sets, but especially uh, Goldfinger's uh, playroom where he's got all the henchmen and everything. That's that's where he really shines. Interestingly enough, they couldn't go into Fort Knox to film because basically no one is allowed in Fort Knox. Uh, even the president can't be in Fort Knox. Uh, they basically just created what they thought Fort Knox would look like, and mm-hmm. they did get yeah. to fly over it for some of the exterior shot. They were supposed to be at least 2,000 feet up, but Hamilton had them fly closer to 500 feet up. Uh, so I'm sure he got some shit for that. Uh, supposedly there were a lot of American audiences that were irritated thinking that they had actually let them in Fort Knox, <laughs> um, which sounds ridiculous, but I wouldn't be shocked. Goldfinger opened in the UK on September 18th of uh, 1964. Uh, then it opened in the US on December of 1964. And since the US didn't actually get from Russia with love until uh, spring or summer of 1964, uh, we actually had two Bond films that year. In fact, two Bond films are only separated by like eight months. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we talked about this last week, but both of them finished in the top 10. Uh, Goldfinger did make more money. It finished third mm-hmm. uh, for Russia with the Love, as we said last week, finished seventh. Uh, Goldfinger made $23 million in the U.S., and it had a worldwide gross of a little under $125 million. Uh, the movie was banned in Israel for a while because of Frobe's association with the Nazi party, but then the Jewish family I mentioned he helped out publicly thanked him for helping them hide during the war. So after that, Israel actually released mm-hmm. the ban. Mm-hmm. Most of the critical reviews were positive. Uh, 99% mm-hmm. average rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Can't get a whole lot better than that. Uh, 69 reviews, which seems fitting for this franchise. Of course. Uh, Roger Ebert at the time said it was the best Bond film. Um, but yeah, everybody seemed to like it for the most part. Uh, just some random trivia. While they did film some of the stuff in Miami, uh, Linder, the guy playing Felix Leiter, was the only one that was actually in Miami for any mm-hmm. of the shooting. Uh, everyone else was on a Pinewood studio stage. Uh, a young Jimmy Page played on the soundtrack. Really? He was uh, he was a big studio really? musician at the time, so huh. he was that he was in some of that. Yeah. To promote the film, two Aston Martins were displayed at New York's World Fair in 1964. Guinness Book of World Records at the time listed this as the fastest grossing film, whatever that means. As far as awards go, John Barry was nominated for a Grammy, which we already discussed. He did not win. Uh, Ken Adams was nominated for a BAFTA for Best Art Direction for a, a film in color. He did not win that. However, he did, oddly enough, still win a a BAFTA that year for Best Art Direction for Black and White. And I think we even mentioned this last week because he also worked on uh, Dr. Strangelove, which is why uh, he wasn't on From Russia With Love. Uh, Norman Wanstall won the Oscar uh, for Best Sound Effect Editing. So uh, it has appeared on some AFI lists. I just think the AFI lists are so stupid, but, mm. you know, <laughs> I guess we'll talk about them. Uh, it was number 90 on Best Movie Quotes for Martini, Shaken Not Stirred. 
It was number 53 on the list for best songs and number 49 on the list for best villain. Number 71 for most thrilling film. Last thing I'll share here is that current reviews of the film are pretty positive and Goldfinger is often ranked high on these best of Bond lists. Uh, you'll see every now and then. All right, so I think that's it for the behind the scenes this week. Uh, now we're going to get to talk about our own thoughts on the movie, and we will do that in a segment we like to call a review to a kill. I've got you in my sights. Get the fuck out of my sight before I demolish you. What we've got here is failure to communicate. There's no need to shout. I'm not shouting. Why don't you stop your whining and get on with it? I've heard this shit before. We are going to give you our thoughts on whatever film we are discussing this week. This week, we are discussing Goldfinger. Chris, just real quick, had you seen this one when you were younger? I don't remember having seen this before uh, going through all of them. In fact, there may, I don't know if I had, I had, I, I may have seen one or two Conneries at this point, but I don't know. I, I If I had seen any of them, it would have been this one, but no, I don't remember this uh, at all before 2006. So yeah, it's, it's one of those movies, even if you haven't seen it before, you've probably seen parts of it or you know about parts of it or have seen it parodied. Well, yeah, it's, it's one of them. It's one of the most famous Bond, James Bond, uh, uh, moments. Um, it's uh, it's got you know it's got a bunch of images that just especially like Odd Job and you know the you know and um, just uh, and and you know no Mister Bond, I expect you to die and the laser and all that. It's just there's a million different things, but yeah, yeah, for sure. I will just say real quickly. I know I saw this one when I was younger, and it's definitely one of the ones I've seen the most times. Um, as a teenager or a college-aged individual, this was the film I would usually go to as my favorite of the franchise. Uh, because I saw it so much when I was younger, it's been a minute since I've seen it. Uh, so we'll have to see where it ranks for me once we're done going through these again. But I will say currently, it's my favorite of the first three. You could definitely argue that um, For Russia With Love is a better movie, and I wouldn't fight anyone on that at all. I mean, I, I think that's totally reasonable. Uh, but I just have a lot more fun with this one for whatever reason. I think there's a period right around the midpoint where things slow down enough where I'm not as invested, but then it does pick back up for the climax. This is an extremely entertaining movie. Uh, so Chris, what is your overall opinion? Okay. So I've seen this movie probably three times now since 2006. Um, and every time I watch it, there is a point where I start getting bored with it. I think I love everything, just just pure movie lover wise, all the way up until he the Fort Knox operation happens, which is that's a bulk of the movie, right? Like I love everything all the way up until that point. The Fort Knox thing is such a letdown for me, though, and I get really bored during it, and it leaves me a little cold. And then there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things before that, just plot wise, that okay, yes, it's a Bond film, so we're gonna be as ridiculous as possible, and it doesn't really matter this, that, and the other thing. We're just, just you know, we're just uh, making fantasy land and everything. But one of the other things that through my viewings of this movie that I never understood is they is that Bond saves himself by saying, well, there's going to be another agent after me who, and they're, and they know everything about operation grand slam. And, you know, they, you know, you better be worried about these people, even though I, they, you just caught the best agent in the world. You better be worried about the people coming after me. That saves Bond. Uh, and Goldfinger seems to think it's a great, now he Goldfinger is quite crazy in this. I think that's 
pretty clear in this. So even if he is, even if he does think that he's doing the right thing, it, you can read it as, oh, he's he's just thinks so highly of himself that any idea that he comes up with is good. Uh, but it, it makes no sense that Bond just keeps living throughout this whole movie, especially in the very first moment, like when he uh, uh, basically hijacks that uh, card game and and uh, and um, God, what's I'm trying to when it's uh, Jill Masterson is uh, giving him giving him uh, like radioing in what the other guy has and all that, and Bond comes in there and tells him to start losing and and everything. Well, you know he 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 has a uh, you know he he does what bond does and he has sex with her and everything and then he gets odd job hits him when he goes to the kitchen and they're like well we're gonna paint this girl completely with gold and kill her which is just beyond unbelievable like it's a it's a great scene don't get me wrong i wouldn't change a thing about it it's just that it makes no sense why the guy who actually did all the the bad stuff to goldfinger there just got to go away scot-free uh, in that whole thing. So, but uh, other than just some weird plot things that I can totally let go, like I don't have any problem with it overall. It's that it's when it gets to the Fort Knox thing, I'm just like, uh, okay, now this is not as fun anymore, but, uh, they don't have the same kind of like, I guess if you wanted to, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of funny that Goldfinger has a military uniform and he's able to somehow, uh pose as an american like general or something during this whole thing and everybody's like okay and you know uh but uh everything from that point i'm just like and there's just a lot of little things but i love like all the other stuff before that so awesome i i think i'm kind of with you i will say a couple things about the book and we'll get into more detail on that later but the writers were dealing with a couple things in the book they had to adapt that weren't great the the way bond escapes death in the book is worse than it is in the movie and they had to figure out something different from that and goldfinger's plan and why he's doing what he's doing at fort knox is also a little different uh, I will say I kind of like Goldfinger's idea of I'm going to destroy that gold and so everything I have will go up in value. That's what happens in the film. Uh, I don't know enough about the market to know whether or not this would work as effectively as Goldfinger thinks it will, but it's obviously I probably not out of the realm of possibilities. Mm-hmm. Especially as far as you know Bond villain plans go. Uh, it's probably not the craziest. I don't know what's in the book, but apparently Ian Fleming, before writing Goldfinger talk to somebody who was in this world the gold world basically somebody who's a big expert of this and there is some discussion early on uh about like you know uh you know americans and and british like uh checking each other so that they know what the dollar is worth and they know what the pound is worth and all that um I, I mean, I'm sure like getting rid of that much gold would cause some sort of uh, issue, but I don't, I don't know either. It also just feels like once they destroy the gold and then there's like this one guy that has the majority of the world's gold supply, how would they not suspect him of doing it? <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but I don't know. As far as a villain's plan in a Bond film, it's not one of the worst. And then, uh, well, and then later, uh, the movie Die Hard with a Vengeance tries to basically go through this whole same uh, plot, uh, uh, only, you know, because, you know, Simon Gruber is like his brother, he's pretending to blow up the gold and everything, so. Yeah, like those kids on the bikes, you could rob Fort Knox. Yeah, yeah. Dun, 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 d
uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance, by the way, that that's a movie I keep liking more each time I watch it. But anyways, another thing that doesn't really work is Pussy Galore is not really as interesting a character as I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be fair, Honor Blackman plays the character as well as she can with the way the character is written. And yeah. I think her ability to rise above the material is why she is considered to be one of the better Bond girls. Uh, she's almost just like a decorative item in the movie uh, that just kind of gets moved around like a chess piece or something. And then, you know, her emotions will be whatever it is they need to be at that moment. Uh, the scene where her and Bond eventually hook up is super weird. Uh, she is not into Bond at all. Not at uh, all. The way that she's been playing the character up to that point. But then Bond gets really aggressive with her. I guess they have sex, and then I guess the sex went so well, uh, Galore just decides to fight with Bond now instead of, you know, uh, sticking with Goldfinger. She's going to be on Bond's mm-hmm. side all of a sudden. Well, that that's that's probably the the biggest plot thing of this movie, right? Like, like he, for lack of better phrasing, he had sex with her so well that she she decided that I'm going to change. I, like she is clearly wanting to ha- to have this huge windfall for what she's doing although it does make me wonder throughout the with the actions that Goldfinger does in this I'm wondering if he's planning on killing them afterwards because he does that quite a bit in this movie but uh maybe maybe she realizes that's probably her fate because you know because that's what he's been doing with everybody else but but yeah that uh you know and then being able to and then calling you know the the CIA about it and t- and and then having the whole plan change like er, like somehow able to inform all these soldiers at Fort Knox to fall f- to fall down when the planes go by and pretend pretend to you know uh, so like you know, all that is just like it's like too it's way too neat uh to to be able to do that and and it just it's just off putting I just I think they got, they must have gotten tired already of women just throwing themselves at Bond. So they're like, oh, there's got to be somebody who resists. But the, by by making the resist part of there, it's making it creepy and, and just wrong. But she's clearly the first one, Bond girl they've hired, uh, not because somebody saw some picture of somebody like, you know, like they did with Ursula Andress. You know, they, you know, they, they, they actually got somebody who was an actor there. Whereas in previous, in the other two films, they usually got beauty queens, uh, to, to, to fill in a lot of these roles. So I, I agree. I agree. This is one of the better female performances in the franchise. Um, but even with those few negatives, the movie still works really well. And it's just so entertaining. And I do like quite a bit at the end. I love the Bond and Odd Job fight. I love the thing where they both see the key by the dead guard. That is fun. And and it's also it's also uh, just from the behind the scenes part too, where they actually had to uh I don't I don't think they shock him at the end because he's you know, he's holding on to those bars or whatever. But there is like a bunch of sparks and stuff, and it was like actual heat. And so, like, he was holding on, and there's, like, his hand gets burned during that scene. And, uh, and, uh, he, after the scene is shot, uh, he goes, Yeah, I burned my hand pretty good. And he goes, Why did you keep holding on? And he's like, Well, you didn't say cut. Um, the scene with the laser while Bond is strapped to the table is obviously an iconic scene for the franchise. But I think the thing about that scene that I really love is that this is only the third movie, and they're already, like, self aware enough to, 
see how ridiculous it is for a bad guy to just lay out their entire plan instead of just killing Bond, which doesn't really go away. But I still love that they kind of address that in this movie and they end up making, you know, one of the one of the most iconic scenes in Bond history. Just I mean, this is the thing that Austin Powers always made fun of. Right. Where it's like, hey, I can just get a gun and we can shoot them together. And, you know, it's like, Scott, you just don't get it, do you? You know, And there's also something uh, interesting about the way that they shot that scene where they had a blowtorch under the table, I think. And there was like some pre-cutting on the table. Yeah, they pre-cut the table, I believe, and and it actually does get very close to to burning Sean Connery, yeah. Yeah, so from what I understand, yeah, when he's looking up, which I think a person would do naturally, but there is real fear in Connery's expression. That 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 expression he has on his face is legit. Like that is not acting. Yeah, you don't know what's going on here. Somebody might be doing something they don't they're not supposed to do, yeah. And I think that might be the most iconic scene in the franchise involving Bond and the main villain. I think it has to be. This is the thing that every every Bond retrospective goes back to is this is this one scene. So yeah. So both of us enjoyed this. There there are caveats, of course. I think if you're a younger fan that's maybe only seen the Craig films and you don't know what older one would be the best to start with, I think this might be the one. Yeah. Um. And 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 you're going to talk about the um the playroom that uh that goldfinger has where he has all these other these other people in it um i just wanted to say that this scene is weird there's no doubt about it it's weird but it's also funny weird to me um because it, it one of the things that's funny to me is like the the he's got all these guys who've done something for him they all want a million dollars for what they did uh Every time Goldfinger does something, which he does, gives no warning to them whatsoever. He's obviously fucking with them. If you've ever seen any Bond movie or any villain whatsoever at this point, you realize that because he's doing this, these guys' day, these guys' days are numbered probably because he doesn't care. But like they form the narrators of the scene a lot. Like they sit there and go, "Hey, what's going on with that funky pool table you got there, Goldfinger?" And like, uh, and like, "Oh my God, what are you doing there?" And so, like, so, like, it's really funny because he's just sitting there. He's just like hitting all this. And now, just step back for a moment and think about this room and like all this stuff that Goldfinger has set up just to show some very minor things. It's really, really funny. And then it really, I think, the punchline of this whole scene is when Sean Connery, when Bond is down underneath. And he's he's able to spy through that map, and it has Fort Knox or whatever. Look at the room that he's in. There is this gigantic like, uh, like I don't know hydraulic system that has been in that has been implemented so that so that Goldfinger can just show a picture of Fort Knox. Essentially, it's like this giant like thing, and uh, this is just a room dedicated to 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 this Fort Knox plan. It's so, it's it's crazy and fun, and I was laughing all the way through it. The thing I don't understand is he's planning on gassing these guys after the meeting, so I don't even know why he lets that one guy go, and mm-hmm. I don't know why he even tells them the plan. Yeah, but you're, but it, but it's, yeah, it totally makes no sense if he's just in, intends on killing these people all the way. Now, maybe, maybe there's a part of him that if these guys weren't so quote-unquote greedy, even though they are owed a million dollars, Maybe if one of them or two of them didn't say anything about the money and just maybe he wouldn't have killed them, but all of them seem to want their money. So I don't know. 
Visually, it's fun to watch, but it doesn't make a lot of sense once you start thinking about it. I don't even know what those accents are, but it's like, hey, hey, why didn't you tell me I was going to be with the guys yeah, from Chicago? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. All right. So now we are going to get into You're not going to rank this film ranking. in five different categories. Our scale will be based on something that Bond holds near and dear to his heart as long as they are shaken and not stirred. That would be martinis. So for each category, we will rank from one to five martinis, five being the best damn liquid that has ever passed your lips, and one being the well liquor you had to settle for or were too drunk to care about that night. Our first category is the story, your overall thoughts on the film, however you want to address that. How would you rank that, Chris? So the story itself, I guess, is is just bonkers, but we're supposed to believe that Goldfinger himself is bonkers. So like, so so a lot of the things that were like what the hell is you know really just a madman doing madman things and uh you know but we have discussed a lot of weird moments in this plot that really don't make much sense um even if you were to take out the factor that this guy's a madman and everything just anything goes there's still a lot of things in it that don't make sense especially as we discussed uh pussy galore deciding to just go ahead and change her entire life because bond has sex with her and maybe her sexual orientation maybe that's a legend that's a legend so i mean I, because there's so many different fun things in this i don't want to like go too far but i'll say 3.5 on that one may almost a four right on right on um i'm going a solid four uh, i actually thought it'd be coming in with a five here mm-hmm. but there's a there's a couple things we talked about keeping me from, you know, going quite that high. Uh, next, we are rating the Bond. Uh, it's interesting because I think Connery is really good in this, and I wouldn't say he's sidelined, but he does feel more like a side character at times, mm-hmm. um, especially compared to the first two films. And I think they actually do eventually find that perfect, like, uh, medium in some of these films between the hero and the villain. Um but Bond is just not used as well in this one. So that yeah. does kind of make me go down, even though Connery is still giving a really good performance. But I think I've got to go with a three. I, I think he's that's this is a weird one, right? Because I think he's a better actor than he's ever been in, in than in the first two. Like there's just a more confidence and more assured and, and everything. Uh, it's just that the story itself kicks him out. And, and like I said, is that weird that weird thing that Goldfinger does where he's like, I've got to keep him around and like brings him to Fort Knox during that. I don't understand any of that. Um, uh, but yeah, he, he's basically just sidelined as a, as a character who's just hanging around the whole time. And he, um, so yeah, I mean, I'm going to give him, he's, he's about a 3.5 again. I mean, his acting is, is, is better. He's still confident, but it's just, he's just gets taken out of it. And we didn't even talk about like Elm and Moneypenny because they're barely in this one. There's that one scene in the office and you could take mm-hmm. that scene out of the movie and nothing would change. Yeah. And, and it gives them a chance to once again, do the hat gag. Only Moneypenny's the one that does it this time. And then of course, you know, M is like, you know, could you just, could you dispense with that usual? He's, it's so very British, right? You know, like this, it's, it's not stop flirting out there or anything. It's just like, could you dispense with the usual, whatever he says it is you know that they're doing uh and let bond go basically all right so next up is the villain slash henchman uh so we've got goldfinger and odd job uh this is a pretty easy five for me i gotta be honest yeah odd job is one of the best all time because um the, the the it's it's you know it's this is just all time stuff uh it's so bizarre like you know he's got a hat for a weapon he's able to throw it 
and and like cut the head off a statue of course that's such a funny scene too because she because bond is like what do you think that the owners of this place would think and he goes well i own this place so it doesn't matter uh but uh but when you have somebody of that that kind of strength and he's busting golf balls in his hands and and everything and he seems indestructible when they get in that fight at the end you're like well how is he gonna how is he gonna take this guy down because he's obviously just impervious to punching so next category is the gadgets the gizmos uh which i think mostly in this movie revolves around the aston martin which is a lot of fun and i think i'll give it a solid four aston martin is such a great car um and uh one understand they um they they had a prototype for whatever what the next aston martin was going to be and, and and you know they had to have that ejector seat that you know whatever like he's like he, you you know with a special effects guy was like and man there was that one day where we had to start cutting a hole through this just brilliant piece of machinery basically uh but uh yeah the gadgets in this one are are, are pretty fun it, it also starts this like you know this oddly specific like every time q gives him a gadget it's like oh he is able to use every single thing that is in this like everything comes up where he can use uh this stuff although i don't know if he uses the oil slick uh thing in the in the car don't remember the oil slick thing but he does use the he does of course use the little the blades that go and cut the girl's tire the the sister of the uh of the woman who got painted gold um uh which is that's another by the way we just just think about that that is a weird scene too her just showing up at the you know in this place and like i'm gonna kill goldfinger he's like he killed my sister and blah 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 and it's like it makes no sense but i would give it a four um i you know i I guess if you're going and i guess they have to be checkoffs um you know checkoffs uh gadgets if they're gonna rattle off all these cool things that he can do you should probably use them in some way, but it always seems like they make the story fit the gadgets instead of the gadgets fitting the story. So like, uh, so it's really weird that they put some of this stuff in. Oh, he just so happens to be in a situation where he has to eject this guy from the seat, you know. Um, but um, anyway, the gadgets are fun, and I love that car. So yeah, we we'll, gave it a four. And our last category is the Bond song, and this is another easy five for me. Big time five, yeah. Um. It's it's not my favorite, but I think it has, as I discussed before, I think it has one of the most brilliant, like, takes you into it uh, moments, so that, especially because it's the opening credits, but uh, it has one of the most brilliant, like, you know, like, starts to a song, and it just gets you in, yeah. All right, now let's see if you should also read the book. This next segment is something we like to call The Spy Who Reads Me. Reading is one of my very favorite things to do. Whoa, I'm not reading that crap. Summarize it in one word. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. How can you read this? There's no pictures. CinemaSins might have taught you that the book doesn't matter, but for this segment, we're willing to concede it at least kind of does. We are going to give you the nitty-gritty on what is similar to what you saw on the screen, what is different, and there will be plenty of what the hell was ian fleming smoking when he wrote this um so this book is kind of terrible um it's it's so weird because it's very similar to the movie but where it's different it's not good uh it's the seventh Mm -hmm. novel in the series and it's right after dr no and it's right before for your eyes only uh in the book series 
So some things that are different. Uh, the Miami scene is different in the book, but he's actually there just on vacation. He uh, he runs into this random guy who he strikes up a conversation with and finds out he's getting fleeced by Goldfinger. Uh, he wants to bring Bond in as a friend and have him kind of monitor the game. It ends up being very similar to the movie where Bond figures out there's a woman watching his new friend's cards, but he then goes and he goes up there and he meets with Jill, who pretty much immediately falls in love with him. Mm-hmm. Um, in the book, when Bond makes his demands to Goldfinger, he has Goldfinger put Bond and Jill on a train together. So Jill actually leaves with Bond, uh, and they're together for a little bit, but mm-hmm. she does die eventually. Uh, Goldfinger does try to kill Bond early on. He does strap him to a table, but it's not a laser he uses. Uh, and from what I read, lasers were just not much of a thing at this point in time. But in the 60s, everyone thought the idea of them was so cool. Uh, so that's kind of why they decided to use that in the movie. But in the book, it's a table saw, uh, which, I mean, we've seen plenty of scenes where a villain has like had somebody, you know, somebody's going near the table saw and somebody's got to come in and save them. Uh, so that's kind of what it was here. Uh, Bond does talk himself out of getting killed again. However, in the book, uh, Goldfinger decides not to kill him because Bond offers uh, his uh, Bond offers to work for him. And so Goldfinger decides not to kill him, and he makes Bond his secretary. <laughs> yeah, I'm not joking. What? <laughs> what? Oh my god! Oh, oh god! I'm like I'm I'm like uh, Brad Pitt in Seven at the end, uh, hearing that. Oh, oh god! Uh, Goldfinger's plan still involves Fort Knox. Uh, the plan in the book is a robbery, though. Mm. Uh, he doesn't get away with it because he gets caught before he can. But what I can't figure out and what the book doesn't tell you is how he was even going to be able to do it. Because I think robbing Fort Knox makes way less sense than what they do in the movie. Because how are you going to get all that gold somewhere? You know, here's the thing, though. In the movie, Bond explains why it would be impossible for him to steal all that gold because of, you know, the number, uh, you know, how heavy it is and the time frame. Uh, but, but, uh, I feel like someone like Goldfinger could easily hire. He's already got like this giant army uh, where you can drive, you know, just like uh, Jeremy Irons does in Die Hard with a Vengeance, get a whole bunch of dump trucks and just go in there and forklift as much as you can out of there in a certain amount of time. You don't have to get it all. You, you know, you can get like five million, six million, and then move on. Um in the book, he is insanely obsessed with gold. Goldfinger is. Uh, so he has these like golden swimming trunks. Mm. Uh, that's what he suntans in. He also has a library full of gold-covered pornographic magazines. Mm. Um, yeah. Pussy Galore. Uh, Pussy Galore is the leader of a group of gay female burglars known as the Cement Mixers in the book. Uh, she's hired by Goldfinger because he wants her to kill all the guards at Fort Knox by poisoning the water supply. I don't have any idea why he needs them specifically for that, but that's what he does. Uh, it's on one hand nice that the novel doesn't try to shy away from the sexual orientation of the Pussy Galore character, but it's also being written from the perspective of Ian Fleming. So um, that ends up kind of being not great. Um, the gang meeting scene does happen, but the only person who gets killed is the guy who backs out of the deal, which actually makes a lot of sense. And like a, they, uh, they kind of re, uh, they kind of touch back up on this scene in A View to a Kill, uh, and it, it, and I think it's more like the, how this one ends. Uh, Tilly, uh, who's Jill's sister, uh, she is in the novel. She gets captured with Bond, so she lives a little longer. She's essentially the Honey Rider character uh, in this book. But in, you know, in the movie, she's not around long enough. Um, Ajab gets sucked out of the plane window. Uh, I kind of love that scene in the movie, though. 
<laughs> it's super ridiculous. <laughs> it's like it's like a guy as giant as Goldfinger getting sucked through this tiny window at the end. Yeah. But Bond does kill Goldfinger. It's just more of a just a traditional, you mm-hmm. know, they fight each other and he kills them. Uh, Odd job is not interesting in the book, really. He's just kind of a muscle. There's just not a whole lot to him. Sounds like Dean was the one that really added a lot to that character when he wrote this when he came in and yeah. wrote the script. Uh, yeah. So the book is just fucking weird. Um, so that's all I really have to say about it. And that's going to do it for this week. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us again next week when we will talk about Thunderball. Until then, keep the martinis dry and shaken, the Baccarat shoe moving, and the Aston Martin fully gassed. This is Chris Atkinson and Jonathan Watkins signing off, and we will see you next mission. (laughs) 